Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 21 and 22 of Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 21 In which the master of the tankadier runs great risk of losing a reward of two hundred pounds. This voyage of eight hundred miles was a perilous venture on a craft of twenty tons, and at that season of the year the Chinese seas are usually boisterous subject to terrible gales of wind, and especially during the equinoxes, and it was now early November. It would clearly have been to the master's advantage to carry his passengers to Yokohama, since he was paid a certain sum per day, but he would have been rash to attempt such a voyage, and it was imprudent even to attempt to reach Shanghai. But John Bunsby believed in the tankadier, which rode on the waves like a seagull, and perhaps he was not wrong. Late in the day, they passed through the capricious channels of Hong Kong, and the tankadier, impelled by favourable winds, conducted herself admirably. I do not need pilot, said Phileas Fogg, when they got into the open sea, to advise you to use all possible speed. Trust me, your honour, we are carrying all the sail the wind will let us. The poles would add nothing, and are only used when we are going into port. It's your trade, not mine pilot, and I confide in you. Phileas Fogg, with body erect and legs wide apart, standing like a sailor, gazed without staggering at the swelling waters. The young woman, who was seated aft, was profoundly affected as she looked out upon the ocean, darkening now with the twilight on which she had ventured in so frail a vessel. Above her head rustled the white sails, which seemed like great white wings. The boat, carried forward by the wind, seemed to be flying in the air. 
The night came. The moon was entering her first quarter, and her insufficient light would soon die out in the midst of the horizon. Clouds were rising from the east and already overcast a part of the heavens. The pilot had hung out his lights, which was very necessary in these seas, crowded with vessels bound landward, for collisions are not uncommon occurrences, and, at the speed she was going, the least shock would shatter the gallant little craft. Fix, seated in the bow, gave himself up to meditation. He kept apart from his fellow travellers, knowing Mr. Fogg's taciturn tastes. Besides, he did not quite like to talk to the man whose favours he had accepted. He was thinking, too, of the future. It seemed certain that Fogg would not stop at Yokohama, but would at once take the boat for San Francisco, and the vast extent of America would ensure him impunity and safety. Fogg's plan appeared to him the simplest in the world. Instead of sailing directly from England to the United States like a common villain, he had travelled three quarters of the globe so as to gain the American continent more surely, and there, after throwing the police off his track, he would quietly enjoy himself with the fortune stolen from the bank. But, once in the United States, what should he, Fix, do? Should he abandon this man? No, a hundred times no. Until he had secured his extradition, he would not lose sight of him for an hour. It was his duty, and he would fulfill it to the end. At all events, there was one thing to be thankful for. Passapartout was not with his master, and it was above all important, after the confidences Fix had imparted to him, that the servant should never have speech with his master. Phileas Fogg was also thinking of Passapartout, who had so strangely disappeared. Looking at the matter from every point of view, it did not seem to him impossible that, by some mistake, the man might have embarked on the Carnatic at the last moment, and this was also Uda's opinion, who regretted very much the loss of the worthy fellow to whom she owed so much. They might then find him in Yokohama, for... If the Carnatic was carrying him thither, it would be easy to ascertain if he had been on board. A brisk breeze arose about ten o'clock, but, though it might have been prudent to take in a reef, the pilot, after carefully examining the heavens, let the craft remain rigged as before. The tankadier bore sail admirably as she drew a great deal of water 
and everything was prepared for high speed in case of gale. Mr. Fogg and Uda descended into the cabin at midnight, having been already preceded by Fix, who had lain down on one of the cots. The pilot and crew remained on deck all night. At sunrise the next day, which was 8th November, the boat had made more than 100 miles. The log indicated a mean speed between 8 and 9 miles. The tankadier still carried all sail and was accomplishing her greatest capacity of speed. If the wind held as it was, the chances would be in her favour. During the day, she kept along the coast, where the currents were favourable. The coast, irregular in profile, and visible sometimes across the clearings, was at most five miles distant. The sea was less boisterous, since the wind came off land, a fortunate circumstance for the boat, which would suffer, owing to its small tonnage, by a heavy surge on the sea. The breeze subsided a little towards noon, and set in from the southwest. The pilot put up his poles, but took them down again within two hours, as the wind freshened up anew. Mr. Fogg and Uda, happily unaffected by the roughness of the sea, ate with a good appetite. Fix being invited to share their repast, which he accepted with secret chagrin. To travel at this man's expense and live upon his provisions was not palatable to him. Still, he was obliged to eat, and so he ate. When the meal was over, he took Mr. Fogg apart and said, Sir, this sir scorched his lips, and he had to control himself to avoid collaring this gentleman. Sir, you have been very kind to give me a passage on this boat, but, though my means will not admit of my expending them as freely as you, I must ask to pay my share. Let us not speak of that, sir, replied Mr. Fogg. But, if I insist... No, sir, repeated Mr. Fogg, in a tone which did not admit of reply. This enters into my general expenses. Fix, as he bowed, had a stifled feeling, and, going forward, where he ensconced himself, did not open his mouth for the rest of the day. Meanwhile, they were progressing famously, and John Bunsby was in high hope. He several times assured Mr. Fogg that they would reach Shanghai in time, to which that gentleman responded that he counted upon it. The crew set to work in good earnest, inspired by the reward to be gained. There was not a sheet which was not tightened, not a sail which was not vigorously hoisted, 
not a lurch could be charged to the man at the helm. They worked as desperately as if they were contesting in a royal yacht regatta. By evening, the logs showed that 220 miles had been accomplished from Hong Kong, and Mr. Fogg might hope that he would be able to reach Yokohama without recording any delay in his journal, in which case the many misadventures which had overtaken him since he left London would not seriously affect his journey. The tankadier entered the Straits of Fo Ken, which separate the island of Formosa from the Chinese coast. In the small hours of the night, and crossed the Tropic of Cancer. The sea was very rough in the straits, full of eddies formed by the countercurrents, and the chopping waves broke her course, whilst it became very difficult to stand on deck. At daybreak the wind began to blow hard again, and the heavens seemed to predict a gale. The barometer announced a speedy change, the mercury rising and falling capriciously. The sea also, in the southeast, raised long surges which indicated the tempest. The sun had set the evening before in a red mist, in the midst of the phosphorescent scintillations of the ocean. John Bunsby long examined the threatening aspects of the heavens, muttering indistinctly between his teeth. At last he said in a low voice to Mr. Fogg, Shall I speak out to your honour? Of course. Well, we are going to have a squall. Is the wind north or south? asked Mr. Fogg quietly. South, look, a typhoon is coming up. Glad it's a typhoon from the south, for it will carry us forward. Oh, if you take it that way, said John Bunsby, I've nothing more to say. John Bunsby's suspicions were confirmed. At a less advanced season of the year, the typhoon, according to a famous meteorologist, would have passed away like a luminous cascade of electric flame. But in the winter equinox, it was to be feared that it would burst upon them with great violence. The pilot took his precautions in advance. He reefed all sail. The pole masts were dispensed with. All hands went forward to the bows. A single triangular sail of strong canvas was hoisted as a storm jib so as to hold the wind from behind them. Then they waited. John Bunsby had requested his passengers to go below, but this imprisonment is so narrow a space with little air and the boat bouncing in the gale was far from pleasant. Neither Mr. Fogg, Fix, nor Uda consented to leave the deck. 
the storm of rain and wind descended upon them towards eight o'clock. With but its bit of sail, the tankadier was lifted like a feather by a wind, an idea of whose violence can scarcely be given. To compare her speed to four times that of a locomotive, going a full steam would be below the truth. The boat scudded thus northward during the whole day, borne on by monstrous waves, persevering always, fortunately, a speed equal to theirs. Twenty times she seemed almost to be submerged by these mountains of water which rose behind her, but the android management of the pilot saved her. The passengers were often bathed in spray, but they submitted to it philosophically. Fix cursed it, no doubt, but Uda, with her eyes fastened upon her protector, whose coolness amazed her, showed herself worthy of him, and bravely weathered the storm. As for Phileas Fogg, it seemed just as if the typhoon were a part of his program. Up to this time, the tankadier had always held her course to the north, but towards evening, the wind, veering three quarters, bore down from the northwest. The boat, now lying in the trough of the waves, shook and rolled terribly. The sea struck her with fearful violence. At night, the tempest increased in violence. John Bunsby saw the approach of darkness and the rising of the storm with dark misgivings. He thought a while, and then asked his crew if it was not time to slacken speed. After a consultation, he approached Mr. Fogg and said, I think, your honour, that we should do well to make for one of the ports on the coast. I think so too. Ah, said the pilot, but which one? I know of but one, returned Mr. Fogg tranquilly. And that is? Shanghai. The pilot, at first, did not seem to comprehend. He could scarcely realize so much determination and tenacity. Then he cried, Well, yes, your honor is right, to Shanghai. So the tankadier kept steadily on her northward track. The night was really terrible. It would be a miracle if the craft did not founder. Twice it could have been all over with her if the crew had not been constantly on watch. Uda was exhausted, but did not utter a complaint. More than once Mr. Fogg rushed to protect her from the violence of the waves. Day reappeared, the tempest still raged with undiminished fury, but the wind now returned to the southeast. It was a favourable change, and the tankadier again bounded forward on this mountainous sea, though the waves crossed each other and imparted shocks and counter-shocks which would have crushed a craft less solidly built. From time to time, the coast was visible through the broken mist, 
but no vessel was in sight. The tankadier was alone upon the sea. There were some signs of a calm at noon, and these became more distinct as the sun descended towards the horizon. The tempests had been as brief as terrific. The passengers, thoroughly exhausted, could now eat a little and take some repose. The night was comparatively quiet. Some of the sails were again hoisted, and the speed of the boat was very good. The next morning at dawn, they espied the coast, and John Bunsby was able to assert that they were not one hundred miles from Shanghai. A hundred miles, and only one day to traverse them. That very evening, Mr. Fogg was due at Shanghai, if he did not wish to miss the steamer to Yokohama. Had there been no storm, during which several hours were lost, they would be at this moment within thirty miles of their destination. The wind grew decidedly calmer, and happily the sea fell with it. All the sails were now hoisted, and at noon the tankadier was within forty-five miles of Shanghai. There remained yet six hours in which to accomplish that distance. All on board feared that it could not be done, and everyone, Phileas Fogg no doubt accepted, felt his heart beat with impatience. The boat must keep an average of nine miles an hour, and the wind was becoming calmer every moment. It was a capricious breeze, coming from the coast, and after it passed the sea became smooth. Still, the tankadier was so light, and her fine sails caught the fickle zephyrs so well, that, with the aid of the currents, John Bunsby found himself at six o'clock, not more than ten miles from the mouth of Shanghai River. Shanghai itself is situated at least twelve miles up the stream. At seven, they were still three miles from Shanghai. The pilot swore an angry oath. The reward of two hundred pounds was evidently on the point of escaping him. He looked at Mr. Fogg. Mr. Fogg was perfectly tranquil, and yet his whole fortune was at this moment at stake. At this moment also, a long black funnel, crowned with wreaths of smoke, appeared on the edge of the water. It was the American steamer, leaving for Yokohama at the appointed time. Confound her, cried John Bunsby, pushing back the rudder with a desperate jerk. Signal her, said Phileas Fogg quietly. A small brass cannon stood on the forward deck of the tankadier, for making signals in the fog. It was loaded to the muzzle, but just as the pilot was about to apply a red-hot coal to the touch hole, Mr. Fogg said, Hoist your flag. The flag was run up at half-mast, and, this being the signal of distress, it was hoped that the American steamer 
perceiving it, would change her course a little, so as to secure the pilot's boat. Fire, said Mr. Fogg, and the booming of the little cannon resounded in the air. Chapter 22 In which Passapartout finds out that even at the antipodes, it is convenient to have some money in one's pocket. The Carnatic, setting sail from Hong Kong at half past six on the 7th of November, directed her course at full steam towards Japan. She carried a large cargo and a well-filled cabin of passengers. Two staterooms in the rear were, however, unoccupied, those which had been engaged by Phileas Fogg. The next day, a passenger with a half-stupefied eye, staggering gait, and disordered hair was seen to emerge from the second cabin and to totter to a seat on deck. It was Passapartout, and what had happened to him was as follows. Shortly after Fix left the opium den, two waiters had lifted the unconscious Passapartout and had carried him to the bed reserved for the smokers. Three hours later, pursued even in his dreams by a fixed idea, the poor fellow awoke and struggled against the stupefying influence of the narcotic. The thought of a duty unfulfilled shook off his torpor, and he hurried from the abode of the drunkness. Staggering and holding himself up by keeping against the walls, falling down and creeping up again, and irresistibly impelled by a kind of instinct, he kept crying out, The Carnatic, the Carnatic. The steamer lay puffing alongside the quay, on the point of starting. Passapartout had but few steps to go, and rushing upon the plank, he crossed it and fell unconscious on the deck, just as the Carnatic was moving off. Several sailors, who were evidently accustomed to this sort of scene, carried the poor Frenchman down into the second cabin, and Passapartout did not wake until they were 150 miles from China. Thus he found himself the next morning on the deck of the Carnatic, and eagerly inhaling the exhilarating sea breeze, the pure air sobered him. He began to collect his senses, which he found a difficult task, but at last he recalled the events of the evening before, Fix's revelation and the opium house. It is evident, said he to himself, that I have been abominably drunk. What will Mr. Fogg say? At least I have not missed the steamer, which is the most important thing. Then, as Fix occurred to him, As for that rascal, I hope we are all well rid of him, and that he is not dead, as he proposed, 
to follow us on board the Carnatic. A detective on the track of Mr. Fogg, accused of robbing the Bank of England? For sure, Mr. Fogg is no more a robber than I am a murderer. Should he divulge Fix's real errand to his master? Would it do to tell the part of the detective was playing? Would it not be better to wait until Mr. Fogg reached London again, and then impart to him that an agent of the Metropolitan Police had been following him round the world, and have a good laugh over it? No doubt, at least, it was worth considering. The first thing to do was to find Mr. Fogg, and apologize for his singular behavior. Passapartout got up and proceeded, as well as he could with the rolling of the steamer, to the after-deck. He saw no one who resembled either his master or Uda. Good, muttered he. Uda has not got up yet, and Mr. Fogg has probably found some partners at whist. He descended to the saloon. Mr. Fogg was not there. Passapartout had only, however, to ask the purser the number of his master's stateroom. The purser replied that he did not know any passenger by the name of Fogg. I beg your pardon, said Passapartout persistently. He is a tall gentleman, quiet, not very talkative, and has with him a young lady. There is no young lady on board, interrupted the purser. Here is a list of the passengers, you may see for yourself. Passapartout scanned the list, but his master's name was not upon it. All at once an idea struck him. Ah, am I on the Carnatic? Yes. On the way to Yokohama? Certainly. Passapartout had for an instant feared that he was on the wrong boat, but, though he was really on the Carnatic, his master was not there. He fell thunderstruck on a seat. He saw it all now. He remembered that the time of sailing had been changed, that he should have informed his master of that fact, and that he had not done so. It was his fault, then, that Mr. Fogg and Uda had missed the steamer. Yes, but it was his master, and detained the letter at Hong Kong, had involved him into getting drunk. He now saw the detective's trick, and at this moment Mr. Fogg was certainly ruined. His bet was lost, and he himself perhaps arrested and imprisoned. At this thought, Passapartout tore his hair. Ah, if Fix ever came within his reach, what a settling of accounts there would be. After his first depression, Passapartout became calmer and began to study his situation. It was certainly not an inviolable one. He found himself on the way to Japan, and what should he do when he got there? His pocket was empty, 
he had not a solitary shilling, not so much as a penny. His passage had fortunately been paid for in advance, and he had five or six days in which to decide upon his future course. He fell to at meals with an appetite, and ate for Mr. Fogg, Uda, and himself. He helped himself as generously as if Japan were a dessert, where nothing to eat was to be looked for. At dawn on the 13th, the Carnatic entered the port of Yokohama. This is an important port of call in the Pacific, where all the mail steamers and those carrying travelers between North America, China, Japan, and the Oriental Islands put in. It is situated in the Bay of Yedo, and at but a short distance from the second capital of the Japanese Empire and the residence of the tycoon, the civil emperor, before the Mikado, the spiritual emperor, absorbed his office in his own. The Carnatic anchored at the quay near the custom house, in the midst of a crowd of ships bearing the flags of all nations. Passapartout went timidly ashore on this so curious territory of the Sons of Sun. He had nothing better to do than, taking chance for his guide, to wander aimlessly through the streets of Yokohama. He found himself at first in a thoroughly European quarter, the houses having low fronts and being adorned with verandas, beneath which he caught glimpses of neat peristyles. This quarter occupied, with its streets, squares, docks, and warehouses, all the space between the promontory of the treaty and the river. Here, as at Hong Kong and in Calcutta, were mixed crowds of all races, Americans and English, Chinamen and Dutchmen, mostly merchants ready to buy or sell anything. The Frenchman felt himself as much alone among them as if he had dropped down in the midst of the hentots. He had, at least, one resource, to call on the French and English consuls at Yokohama for assistance. But he shrank from telling the story of his adventures, intimately connected as it was with that of his master, and, before doing so, he determined to exhaust all other means of aid. As chance did not favour him in the European quarter, he penetrated that inhabited by the native Japanese, determined, if necessary, to push on to Yedo. The Japanese quarter of Yokohama is called Benten, after the goddess of the sea, who is worshipped on the islands round about. There Passapartout beheld beautiful fir and cedar groves, sacred gates of a singular architecture, bridges half hid in the midst of bamboo and reeds, temples shaded by immense cedar trees, Holy retreats were there, sheltered Buddhist priests and sacreds of Confucius, and interminable streets 
where a perfect harvest of rose-tinted and red-cheeked children, who looked as if they had been cut out of Japanese screens and who were playing in the midst of short-legged poodles and yellowish cats, might have been gathered. The streets were crowded with people. Priests were passing in processions, beating their dreary tambourines. Police and custom house officers with pointed hats, encrusted with lac and carrying two sabers, hung to their waists. Soldiers, clad in blue cotton with white stripes and bearing guns. The Mikado's guards, enveloped in silken doubles, harbucks and coats of mail, and numbers of military folk of all ranks, for the military profession is as much respected in Japan as it is despised in China, went hither and thither in groups and pairs. Passapartout saw two begging friars, long-robed pilgrims and simple civilians, with their wrapped and jet-black hair, big heads, long busts, slender legs, short stature, and complexion varying from copper colour to a dead white. He did not fail to observe the curious equipages, carriages and plankins, barrows supplied with sails, and litters made of bamboo, nor the women, whom he thought not especially handsome, who took little steps with their little feet, whereupon they wore canvas shoes, straw sandals, and clogs of worked wood, and who displayed tight-looking eyes, flat chests, teeth fashionably blackened, and gowns crossed with silken scarves, tied in an enormous knot behind an ornament which the modern Parisian ladies seem to have borrowed from the dames of Japan. Passapartout wandered for several hours in the midst of this motley crowd, looking in at the windows of the rich and curious shops, the jewellery establishments glittering with quaint Japanese ornaments, the restaurants decked with steamers and banners, the tea houses where the odorous beverages was being drunk with sake, a liquor concocted from the fermentation of rice, and the comfortable smoking houses where they were puffing not opium, which is almost unknown in Japan, but a very fine, stringy tobacco. He went on till he found himself in the fields, in the midst of vast rice plantations. There he saw dazzling camellias expanding themselves, with flowers which were giving forth their last colours and perfumes, not on bushes, but on trees and with bamboo enclosures, cherry, plum, and apple trees, which the Japanese cultivate rather for their blossoms than their fruit, and which queerly fashioned, grinning scarecrows protected from the sparrows, pigeons, ravens, and other ferocious birds. On the branches of the cedars were perched large eagles, Amid the foliage of the weeping willows were herons, solemnly standing on one leg, 
and on every hand were crows, ducks, hawks, wild birds, and a multitude of cranes, which the Japanese consider sacred, and which to their minds symbolize long life and prosperity. As he was strolling along, Passapartau to spy some violets among the shrubs. Good, said he, I'll have some supper. But on smelling them, he found that they were odorless. No chance there, thought he. The worthy fellow had certainly taken good care to eat as hearty a breakfast as he possibly could before leaving the Carnatic. But, as he had been walking about all day, the demands of hunger were becoming importunate. He observed that the butcher's stalls contained neither mutton, goat, nor pork, and, knowing also that it is sacrilege to kill cattle, which are preserved solely for farming, he made up his mind that meat was far from plentiful in Yokohama. Nor was he mistaken, and, in default of butcher's meat, he could have wished for a quarter of wild boar or deer, a partridge or some quails, some game or fish, which, with rice, the Japanese eat almost exclusively. But he found it necessary to keep up a stout heart and to postpone the meal he craved till the following morning. Night came, and Passapartout re-entered the native quarter, where he wandered through the streets, lit by vari-coloured lanterns, looking on at the dancers who were executing skilful steps and bounding, and the astrologers who stood in the open air with their telescopes. Then he came to the harbour, which was lit up by the resin torches of the fishermen who were fishing from their boats. The streets at last became quiet, and the patrol, the officers of which, in their splendid costumes, and surrounded by their suits, pass apart out thought seemed like ambassadors, succeeded the bustling crowd. Each time a company passed, pass apart out chuckled, and said to himself, Good, another Japanese embassy departing for Europe. <laughs>